Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Sarah Devonier, and we're here in the UK, in the northeast of England, and I'm here with Margaret. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you. We're really glad that you're here and to share your unique perspective. Would you talk a little bit about how you gained a testimony of the church? Uh, yes, I was 16, and um, I desperately wanted to go to the local youth club but you had to be a member of the Church of England. So I took their lessons, uh, which destroyed any faith I had in God. I just thought that this is rubbish. Um, and so I was walking home, and no disrespect, there's lots of good people there, but I was walking home thinking, there isn't a God that you know, this is ridiculous. And then I kind of felt, I had felt a spirit, and I, I should respect that. So I thought, well, I'll look at all the churches, and, and if there isn't one, there isn't a God and I don't feel anything, that's it, we're done. Um, so I then did look at a lot of churches. I wrote to the Mormon church, they actually didn't write back. And uh, I was giving up when a friend of mine said, do you want to come to church with me? And I said, okay. And it turned out to be the Mormon church. So the first thing they did was say, would you like to have lessons right now? And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. Nobody else has suggested that. Hmm. And in the lessons, they asked me if I'd like to be baptised and if I, would know the church, if I knew the church was true. And I thought, pushy Americans, I am out of here. <laughs> and I left. And walking home, I thought, what an arrogant assumption that they have the truth. And as I crossed the road, I actually felt like I got hit by a sledgehammer. I thought, oh my stars, if that was true, you would have to follow it. But you would at least have to find out. And I actually was so shocked. I remember sitting on a wall thinking, what do I do now? Um, so I went to bed and pulled the covers off my head. And, uh, and I tried not to think about it. And I did pray, and I did pray, about, and I just felt that I had to go further. So I went back and um, I kind of investigated. My parents wouldn't allow me to be baptised because they thought it was a crazy sect. Um, and eventually, after two years, they agreed I could be baptised because I had been persistent and, and I joined the church. What an interesting pattern that you're already establishing in your narrative here, and that is you had an assumption about what the missionaries were all about and that it yeah. was arrogant, but that you were willing to look at it from another side and that there was another possibility, and that was it was true and they weren't arrogant. They were trying to share it with you. So. Yeah. What, with this perspective shift, helped you decide to be baptized? What, what, what was it about the church that interested the, you the most? What was the appeal so that you, after all this time and persistence, decided to get baptized? I don't know. <laughs> I think it was, um, but it was very involving. You know, it, it didn't expect people to sit and hear a, a weekly sermon. It expected you to learn to immerse yourself in it and to practice it. Yeah, so this engagement yeah. in it and the activity. Yeah, that's right. And it was, I mean, at that time, I think we had something going on nearly every night. But when you're young, you, you actually require a lot of entertainment <laughs> and a lot of activity. Um, and it was that there were very committed people there. And it was that as the missionaries rotated through, which they do, they all seemed to have the same kind of sincerity and, and and truth and um, 
I couldn't find a way in which it didn't match up to what was being preached. But I also found personally when I prayed that I did feel the Spirit and I did feel answers to my prayers and I didn't feel concerned about the hostility, particularly my mother had against the church, mm. which was fear and concern for me. Um, but I, it, it, it felt, I felt peaceful and right. And, um, and the thing that switched it was one missionary who didn't realise I wasn't baptised and called me to a position. It, we'd just changed from a, a branch to a ward right. where the rules all changed. So he called me to a position and I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, well, you know, there's no need to be so dismissive. And I said, no, I can't, you know, I'm not baptised. And, and he was, I think the term, a Yorkshire term is gobsmacked. Um, he, he, he just said, well, I will, I will promise I will get you baptised. I'm thinking, another example of missionary arrogance here, mm -hmm. folks, because my mother is immovable. And he went to our house every morning for, um, every Thursday morning, he would go to our house, knock on the door, my mother would turn him away, and he would come back the next Thursday morning. He did this, I didn't know he did this. He did this until my father answered the door. My father was, had no religious beliefs, but was very open-minded. So he took some pamphlets and tracts and read them all. And he thought, well, this is not as bad as we thought it was. It's a family church. For my father, family was everything. So this is a good thing. I found them under his bed and thinking, what the heck? <laughs> but what is he doing? He, he didn't say anything. He, d he, he didn't. We would, didn't have disputes in our family, I'll tell you. But um, one day they knocked on the door and it was raining. They were soaking wet, freezing cold. Now, my mother did not have a heart of stone. She took them in. She said, you can have a hot drink and something to eat and don't talk about religion. <laughs> Um, but at that point, I think my father said, I've been reading about it, and they made disc had discussions about it. And she had said, if you stick with this for two years, you could be yeah. baptised. And my father said to her, that was a promise, and a promise is sacred. Yeah. And so they decided to relent and let me be baptised. Yeah. Well, I think it's so interesting that you, you had these sort of simple confirmations, just peaceful, simple confirmations that it was true, mm. you felt like it was true, yeah. and yet at the same time, you noticed maybe some inconsistencies already, that, yeah. that the missionaries maybe seemed a little arrogant or a little pushy or some of these other things, which is interesting as it leads into the building of your own testimony. As you got baptized, were there things about the church that were difficult for you to deal with just relating to sometimes these apparent contradictions between the way people act and what the doctrine actually is? Um, not initially, because I think I was very naive and young. Yeah, the, the honeymoon phase, yeah. right? And I didn't have any problems, you know. I didn't have any worries or I just boodled along and um, I had a stable home and I had a kind of a job and everything I needed. And I got married and um, even at, at that situation, we, ha we had a, a, a son who was a, a delight. We had a daughter who was desperately ill and who eventually died. Um, but through that, um, people would say kind of, don't you ask why? And I used to think, well, this is what we signed up for. We came down to earth to experience life and life can be pretty horrendous. Um, and certainly it wasn't as horrendous for us as it would have been if we'd been in a third world country with no medical care or in a war zone and, you know, 
we had nothing else other than to care for this child. And although she died, we had this deep belief we would be with her again. And, and, and I guess I felt special that I had this child that didn't need to experience life. It was a, a good spirit, you know. But it was heartbreaking. Um, and it came hard on the heels of the fact my husband had been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And it was a very aggressive form. And initially, he didn't know this. I, I found out about the diagnosis accidentally, and I kept it to myself because I thought, it isn't going to help him if he knows he's not going to get any better. And we'll wait till we have to discuss it. But I found myself sitting thinking, we can't have any more children because we carry this genetic disease that will pass on. Um, we, you know, our life is sort of spinning. In about 10 years' time, I don't reckon my husband will be working. Mm. Um, what am I going to do? You know, where do we go from here? I had no shock of faith, no, no doubts or anything. I just thought, we'll get on with it. And he was so ill. He was ill for a year. He couldn't walk. He couldn't stand. Uh, he was in agony. And not one person visited him from our ward. So, and that, so that's where the conflict that's came That's where the conflict came in, because in the end, um, we are, there's a joke in our family, we are twins, we don't ask for help. <laughs> we are independent. And I went to, to the priesthood and said, please, would you visit my husband? Uh, because I could see him falling into despair and life was just horrendous for him. And I had had to go out to work at that point, so I wasn't yeah. there to help him. Um, and he had our son kind of was getting his lunch and you know that it was a you could feel things fracturing and we about that time we had adopted a little girl as well so you know you're having kind of how how do we get through this one um, and some one of the priesthood people came for two minutes on his way to another appointment mm. and he said I was early so I thought I'd pop in and see you and I remember thinking you lot are out I feel um, and my husband stopped going to church and my son, who was 15, I think, uh, said to me after about three weeks, he said, I'm going to stay with dad. I don't want to go to church. Yeah. And I can remember just feeling such anger because, you know, I felt kind of if there'd been some support, some help um, and thinking at that time, well, what is the point of this? If there's nobody cares, nobody visits. I didn't even know I had home teachers. Um, you know, nobody's there. What, what is the point? Right. And I can remember actually standing in my hall thinking, should I just stay at home? Because I felt awful leaving him at the time when I could be with him and going to a church that didn't care about him anyway. Yeah. I well, felt, I felt. Well, and, and, and it corresponds, there's a nice parallel with things that you noticed about the church, even with your initial interactions. Yeah. That, that there's a definite gap sometimes between how people act and yeah. what they're supposed to believe or yeah. how we think that they should act. And I think, I love that you're honest about that. It, 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 there's some anger involved, especially if you might perceive that as hypocrisy. So yeah. how did you sort of get past that so that you kept going that because with difficulty that, yeah with the, we'll talk about that let's yeah. get into it it yeah. is so difficult but how did you get through it well i um i remember standing in the hall thinking should i go to church and and i'd stopped paying tithing at this point I, I was withdrawing i'd got rid of a lot of church things and i knew in my heart i, w I was leaving 
Um, and I remember thinking, if I leave now, there is absolutely no hope that my daughter will continue going mm. or that my son will return. And it's on my shoulders. And I have to make a decision, is this worth it? Um, and it was quite an agonising decision to make because my emotions felt it wasn't. And my soul felt that it was true and that I should remain true to it. How did you go through that process of separating your emotions from your soul? Because some people relate the spirit purely to emotion. How, how were you able to separate those two? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, th I think something else that happened was that I'd started work, but I, a lot of the sisters resented that and felt I should be at home. So I didn't feel I had anywhere to go for So that compounded support. the feeling of judgment, yeah. sure. Except one sister who was uh, older, who really supported us and looked after uh, uh, looked after my daughter for me. So I had that kind of, there was somebody there and there was, a, I felt a bit of support, but not a lot. And I, I just remember sitting and thinking, um, as when I joined the church, this was a lifelong commitment and it was a, a life-changing commitment and it was everything was going to hinge on it. I felt I'm now at another point where I either make that decision again mm. to be faithful, to hold to the gospel, or I make the decision to walk away. And I think that will be irreversible. I mean, obviously it's not, you can repent and come back. Yeah. But at the time it felt to me, this is it. Knowing my personality, if I did this, I would, I would just leave. So how did I separate it? I have no idea. Um, there was a lot of anguish, there was a lot of praying. There was a lot of examining my family and examining what that meant to me, what my covenants meant to me, what um, an eternal family meant to me. Um, and I remember just thinking, somehow I have to put one foot in front of another and my choice is to know the gospel is true and to know there is a huge gap of expectations. People are at different stages and knowing that people actually maybe don't care because yeah. they haven't got to a stage of caring and that all I can do is work out my salvation and my family's salvation and love them and do the service that I can. Yeah. What a great focus so that instead of focusing out on other people's influence on you, you just had to focus on what's my influence on me and what will be my influence on my children yeah. and other people so it was internalized. Yeah. And also that there are these touchstone moments, but it's yeah. plural. You yeah. had p one pivotal moment at your conversion. You had this other pivotal moment. And I like how you used examination, that it, that it, was, there, it was full of anguish, but you examined the pieces instead of just letting your emotions mm -hmm. make the decision. Yeah. So now in your life, how do you continue to do that? Because life doesn't usually get easier. <laughs> So, so how do you no. make sure that you continue to examine your decisions and make sure you're aware of the consequences for you and for other people and that you're not just using an emotional gut reaction to make the decision yeah. for you? I think, I remember when I finally told my husband that you know he had rheumatoid arthritis and it wasn't going to be a fun journey from now on. Um, and we discussed this while our daughter was ill as well, and he said to me, um, this, is our, this isn't um, a problem we have. 
He said, this is our life hmm. and it's the situation we are in. He said, and we can choose to either sit and cry or sit and moan or blame God or blame anybody else. But he said, or we can choose that we will manage the situation the best we can in the happiest way we can. And strangely, while our daughter was alive, it, it was a very happy time. We, the last holiday we had together was the best holiday we had. And um, it was a determined choice to do it. Yeah. And my husband had immense humour and he would crack jokes and make it laugh out of the blackest situation. Because what we decided was we would find joy in the moment, we would carry on the journey and we would accept that whatever came our way, we sound like heroes, we're not really, it was terrible times, <laughs> but we would learn what we needed to learn from it and what we could do for others. And um, it, what happened in the end, I think, which confirmed that you get the experiences you need was when my daughter's first child was um, born with a genetic disease, <laughs> completely, our adopted daughter. Um, this wasn't supposed to happen, you know, this is why we adopted it and rather than have other children. And the, the child died and I can remember she turned to me upset because we had to go back to the same hospital I'd gone to. And I turned to her because I knew how she felt. Mm. But I felt that was a gift. Yeah. I felt it was a gift from Heavenly Father to both of us so that we would both know. Um, how to get through this. So I felt like it had been a path teaching me how to have faith when intolerable things happened. But still, there are a lot worse situations to be in. We always had support and love of a family, you know. Yeah. So that, I think that, that founded my choices was that I felt God to be a loving God and a caring God. Well, it, and the it, gospel to essentially yeah. be trying to express that even if people were on the learning path and hadn't quite got there to yeah. express it. And it seems very clear that although of course God is loving and you describe these joyful moments that what your husband said about making a choice was crucial to yeah. you being able to see the joy and not this whole time through this journey of persistence and endurance, not let other people be the thief of your joy, not let their yeah. lack of involvement be the thief of your joy. That, like you said, there, were, there was anguish, there were terrifying moments, but that you saw them as a gift. And it seems like that was a very deliberate choice that was carefully made mm -hmm. with this examination. Yeah, yeah, because well, we, we had to. <laughs> We had to do that, but we had, I think at some point I'd made a choice that my faith in the gospel was more important than any, anything else and that that's where I would rest, yeah. you know. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story, especially the vulnerability and the honesty, because I think that's most helpful to people is when they can see there were other choices mm. and you chose the one that would bring you close to God. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, thank I you. appreciate it.